Alright, welcome back everyone. This is Didactic Mind, episode 79, The Islamic Dance. A very warm welcome to everyone, uh, all my long-time listeners on... Uh, I keep wanting to say SoundCloud, it's not SoundCloud, it's Podbean, and I've been on Podbean since uh, about six months now, actually. Um, and uh, quite a lot happier with it because the features are much more rich. Uh, very warm welcome, especially to the readers on my site. And if you have not already subscribed to the mailing list for my site, please make sure you do so using the links in the description box, either here or on my site itself. And uh, that way you will never miss a new update. I really desperately need to get back to writing regularly to my mailing list, which I have not done in like a couple of months now. Uh, I've just been so stupidly busy with everything that's been going on. But... Um, uh, I have managed to keep myself uh, more or less uh, sane in spite of all of the, the, the craziness going on in terms of uh, work and um, other things. And uh, as always, you know, if you are going to do the sorts of things that I do and uh, say the sorts of things that I say, um, you're going to want to do those things, especially these days when you know, censorship, internet censorship is, is ramping up very seriously, uh, using proper, um, shall we say protection <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. Uh, I, I did not intend for the, uh, double meaning there, but, uh, believe me, it works just fine either way. Um, you know, it used to be that surfing the net with a VPN was, as I've said many times before, uh, like taking a shower while wearing a raincoat. Um, these days, surfing the net without a VPN of some kind is a lot like taking a shower while wearing a plugged-in toaster. Um, if you are still surfing more or less unprotected, then understand that tech companies are harvesting information from you. They are using your IP address. They are using your search history. They are using your location and your ISP data to figure out who you are. They are building a history of your movements throughout the, the web. Now, you can take a number of um, very simple, very powerful, very effective steps to stop this shit from happening. Um, the first and most important of these steps is to stop bloody well using Google. You need to stop that shit. You need to get off of Google's Chrome browser as quickly as possible. Um, unfortunately, you can't really get away from Chrome fully. And here's why. The Chromium implementation that Chrome is built upon, or that Google builds Chrome upon, uses Google technology. But the open source version gets rid of all the, the, the googly crap. Uh, if, however, you are still using Chrome, you need to stop. It's dangerous and it's foolish to keep using it. You need to switch instead to Brave Browser. Uh, if you want to use Opera, then you can. I don't have anything against Opera, but uh, I would definitely not use Firefox at all. So these are you know simple free fixes that you can use for your browsing habits. Download Brave. It is fully Linux compatible nowadays. There is a Linux build for it. Um, download Opera, download Pale Moon, which is a great uh, Firefox alternative. It gets rid of all the DRM crap that Mozilla uh, has uh, burdened Firefox with. Um, 
and make sure that on top of all of that, you are divorcing yourself away from Google products. Stop using Google search. Start using DuckDuckGo instead. DDG isn't necessarily less evil. I mean, they apparently do sell search data to Google. The difference is that they don't track your IP address because they can't. They don't track your search terms because they can't. They, uh, they do things rather differently and they don't personalize your search at all. So they just look for who's, they don't look for who's searching for what. They just look at what search terms are most popular and then, you know, um, cater to advertising that way rather than using your searches to compile information about you. Uh, but most important of all, you need to get yourself a VPN. If you haven't gotten one already, check out Surfshark. Uh, Surfshark is the one that I recommend for the most cost-effective VPN around. Uh, you can get a full two-year subscription of Surfshark now for 81% off. $2.49 a month or the equivalent in foreign currency if you're a Canadian, whatever that is in loonies. Um, <laughs> if you're a Brit, whatever that is in pounds or quid uh, and so on and so forth. That's the equivalent of about a cup of coffee every month. Um, stop helping Starbucks. Start helping yourself. Uh, get rid of the awful crappy coffee that tastes like it's been washed through hobo's kidneys before it reaches your cup and invest instead in a VPN. So uh, with that out of the way, um, this podcast is really uh, something I've been meaning to get to for a while now and a uh, longtime reader in front of the site, uh, Sasha Krongmitz, uh, interesting name, kind of um, pushed me in the right direction here by asking me to do a follow-up on some of the pieces that I've written and some of the podcasts that I've done about Islam uh, in the past. And in, most notably, there are, I think, three or four podcasts and a couple of articles. There's one called, there's an article that I wrote called The Unsupportable Heresy. And there was a domain query uh, called The Missing Arab Armies. And then there was a pair of podcasts called uh, One Man, One Book, Parts 1 and 2. And um, I think I did a follow-up at some point about uh, the Quran, um, about the Qibla controversy, uh, not, not the Qibla, uh, the Qira'at controversy concerning the Quran. Um, that's an awful lot of alliteration right there. Uh, I'll, I'll try to avoid that, but you know, no guarantees. Uh, the point of all of that was that uh, essentially everything we know or think we know about Islam is wrong. The standard Islamic narrative, SIN, which is a rather good acronym, it's not my invention, by the way, I'm not, I'm not taking credit for any of this, is a very good way of describing the, the way that Islam portrays itself. And seeing as it was Eid on Thursday, just this past Thursday, um, I thought it was a good time to unpack some of the latest information that we have found about Islam, about its origins specifically. And I'm, Throughout this podcast, I'm going to be using material from Dr. J. Smith of Fander Films. If you, you know, don't believe a single word I say, don't, don't listen to me. Go to Fander Films, P-F-A-N-D-E-R Films on YouTube. Go look up his material. He's got hundreds of videos dating back like 11 years or something, like maybe 14 years, um, talking about Islam. And he's a very loquacious guy. He's very, very enthusiastic and passionate, and he loves to talk. Uh, once you get him started, he will, you know, just go on and on and on for hours. Um, 
he is he is a polemicist. He's the apparently so. Okay, he says this. I don't know if this is true, but he says that he is the very first person in the world to get a PhD in uh, Christian polemics or something like that. Uh, and the reason is that he he was the very first person in the world to take the idea of polemical arguments against Islam and in defense of Christianity. So, like. The, the thing with Islam and Christianity is that the two faiths are very much mirror images of each other. You know, if you look at what Christianity is, Islam is the exact opposite in almost every single way. And, you know, I've talked about this before, and if you're, if you're, if you want more clarification on that, go back and read some of my other articles, go back and listen to my other podcasts. That's, I, I talk about this at some length. But one of the areas where the, the contrast or the, the uh, reflection is the most stark is in this area of polemics versus apologetics. If you're not familiar with the concept, polemics is going on the offensive and apologetics is going on the defensive. Uh, defending your faith, your point of view, that's an apologetic argument. Uh, attacking somebody else's faith, attacking someone else's point of view, that's a polemical approach. Christians are amazingly good at apologetics. I mean, we have done so much homework over the last 2,000 years because we've been under constant attack. Our faith has been constantly assaulted by everyone and everything. Atheists have attacked us in the last 20 years or 30 years thereabouts. Uh, and for a while, it looked like they were winning because we didn't have counter-arguments to some of their more uh, evocative arguments uh, about lack of justice, lack of morality, lack of historical evidence for much of uh, what the Bible says. I mean, this is this you know that lack of historical evidence argument that goes back to the 1800s, goes back to the 1850s, and that argument absolutely just devastated the church in Europe, and it's never recovered since then ever. Um, the, the, the church in Europe is in full-scale retreat and has been for the better part of a century. But because of these attacks, because, you know, iron sharpens iron, as it were, as Dr. Smith loves to say. That's not his real name. Uh, nobody knows what it Well, I don't know what it is. I'm sure some people do, but I don't know what it is. Uh, that's, not his, that's not his true name. He, he, he operates under a pseudonym, just like I do. But um, at any rate... Uh, what Dr. Smith, this is all, you know, everything I say is, is derived from his material. Uh, as, as he says, iron sharpens iron, and Christians have figured out apologetic responses, very solid ones, in fact, which atheists can't answer, because, you know, they're, they're not answerable. Um, these are extremely powerful, logical, and uh, philosophical arguments, which just make sense, and the evidence now supports what the Bible's saying. What you're going to find is that as, as we progress through time, more and more we are realizing that history and science actually support exactly what the Bible said all along. Even some of its most controversial points and ideas, such as Noah's Ark, the Great Flood, um, the creation account of Genesis, all of that, the more and more we are finding that the data and the evidence support that point of view, that narrative, that chronology. So, I won't go too deeply into that. I mean, I won't go any, any more into that, but um, it's worth remembering that. Now, when it comes to Islam and when it comes to Christianity, like I said, Christianity has a very, very strong tradition of apologetics. 
very weak tradition of polemics. It doesn't really go on the attack. It's, it's not Christ-like to attack, as we are constantly told. That is ridiculous, and it's a stupid argument, and Christians really need to stop using it. Was Christ being uh, nice or kind when he called the Pharisees, uh, you empty tombs, you, white, you, know, you, you, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you empty sepulchers, you hypocrites, you liars, you fools. Um, he, was, he was vicious in his attacks. I mean, he came from a place of love and caring, but he was absolutely vicious in his attacks against the Pharisees. And he was fearless in his attacks against the Pharisees. He pulled no punches. These were the very top people in the hierarchy of Judaism at the time of, um, of uh, what's the word, rabbinical, evangelical, I don't know. I mean, um, they were very, very much the, the leaders of high-level Judaism. And he took them apart. He absolutely de- devastated them with polemical arguments. And that is what people like Dr. Smith do. Islam is really, really good at polemics. It's really good at attacking other people's faith. It constantly attacks Hinduism for being a polytheistic, animistic, uh, idol-worshipping religion. Which it is, actually. Um, it, it attacks uh, Judaism for uh, its deviations from the Injil, the, the revelation as they call it, the, the Torah. Which, you know, modern Judaism does deviate significantly from Torah. The, the Torah is not the source of ultimate authority in Judaism. I mean, it's very important, but the Talmud, which is much bigger than the Torah, is the source of authority. Uh, it attacks Christians for being polytheists because it thinks that the concept of the Trinity doesn't make sense. That's where they're wrong, and there are very good arguments as to why they're wrong. Um, but once you start, you know, again, Islam is great at the polemical side. It's great at attacking other people's faith, other people's points of view. It's, as it turns out, absolutely hopeless at defending itself. And we're going to explore why over the next 45 minutes or so. Dr. Smith, in his approach to dealing with Islam, looks at the issue. Uh, he's, he's re- his approach has been refined from more than 25 years of research and debate. And he now looks at the issue of Islam's origins as fundamental, literally, to the entire issue of how to deal with Islam. See, the thing is, with Christianity, the more you look at what Christianity says, the more you look at what our belief system is, and the more you look at the evidence, the more you realize that everything we believe is supported by the evidence. The evidence supports it. It's there. The the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the cosmological evidence, the scientific evidence, it all supports what the Bible says. All of it, right down to the very first chapter of Genesis. So we don't have to spend a whole lot of effort justifying what we believe anymore because the data prove it, okay? With Islam, they have the exact opposite problem. They make a whole series of claims which they cannot support. So what are those claims? Let's let's go through them in some detail. Okay, 
Islam claims that it started from a man named Muhammad from the Hashem tribe in uh, the Hejaz area of Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Peninsula, the, the you know Arabian Peninsula. The Hejaz is in the southwest part of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. It encompasses an area that includes Mecca and Medina. The claim that Islam makes or Islamists make is that Muhammad was a, uh, a merchant, an orphan from um, a poor family. He was adopted by his aunt and uh, I think it was his, either his aunt or his grandmother. I'm pretty sure it was his aunt. Um, and he, he, was a, he was a pagan. He was a polytheist. He was a pagan. He worshipped pagan gods. And he would go to a cave and worship to his, his pagan god um, in that cave. And he did so until he was about 40 years old. And when he was 40 years old, the angel Gabriel, Jibril, as, as Muslims call him, came down to that cave, you know, grabbed him, shook him, basically, squeezed him tight and said, Ikra, um, read. And uh, Muhammad said, Ma'akra, Ma'akra, uh, I think it was, uh, I cannot read. And this happened three times on the trot. And finally... Uh, Jibril Gabriel uh, told Muhammad, uh, fine, if you cannot read, then you must recite. So Muhammad recited and learned verses by heart and recited them. And that is the origin of the Quran. Muhammad uh, from 610 AD to 622 AD uh, preached the, the Quran and uh, tried to you know, bring people in to, to follow uh, his, his teachings and you know, understand this new religion called Islam. For about the first two years or so of his ministry, uh, you know, from 610 to 612, he was in Mecca, where the Quran claims is the oldest city of all mankind. This is where Adam and Eve, well, where Eve fell when she was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam fell somewhere in Babylonia and then crossed the the, the territory all the way over to to Mecca with you know, in just a few strides, basically. Um, none of it makes sense, but you know this is what they believe. It's you know I'm just narrating it. Um, so the the Hijra is the major kind of event of the Islamic calendar. It's the pivotal event. So Muhammad is basically preaching in Mecca for twelve years. Uh, he doesn't really convince anyone. He flees with about dozen people or so. In 622 AD to uh, Medina, Yathrib, as it was known at the time. And this is where you see a significant divide in the Quran. The, the Quran is divided in a very strange way. It's not written like the, the, new, the Old or New Testament. Um, the, it's written from longest chapter to shortest chapter. So in that respect, it does not make any sense. And there's a lot about it that doesn't make sense. And I'll unpack that shortly. Uh, but... He dies, I mean, he, he goes to Medina, he becomes a, basically a medieval warlord and rules over this Islamic empire. He dies in about 632 AD, and after he dies, uh, four rightly guided caliphs follow him. This is the Rashidun period, as it's known, the rightly guided caliph era. So in this era, you have four men, all, you know, kind of close companions of the Prophet. You have, you start with Abu Bakr, ruled from 632 to 634, then, uh, Umar, who ruled from 634 to 644, then Uthman, who ruled from 644 to 656, and finally Ali, uh, between 656 and 661. 
And this is what is known as the early Islamic period. Supposedly during this time, this is when the Quran was compiled, this is when the whole of Islamic law was codified, this is when this figure named Muhammad emerged. Every single thing I just said, every single thing that I just told you about Islam is false. And that's going to piss off a lot of Muslims. If anybody's listening who is Muslim, you, I know this will outrage you. I can't help that. The reality is that the historical evidence doesn't support what you believe. So don't get pissed off at me. Get pissed off at the imams and the lawmakers and the governments and the, you know, the, 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 the scholars and the endless parade of people who have lied to you for 1400 years. There are five aspects of Islam, or the, the early Islamic narrative. <clears throat> Dr. J. Smith calls these the five Qs. Uh, he likes to joke he can't really spell because they're not all spelled, they don't all begin with a Q. But as he says, uh, they are Qibla, Qiraat, Quran, Coins, Quest. The Qiblas, I'll go into each one in some detail over the next, you know, uh, whatever time I have left. But the Qiblas concern the direction of prayer that all Muslims must face. The Qiraat concern the different recitations or readings of the Qur'an. The Qur'an can be spelled with a K or with a Q, typically with a Q, but fine. Concerns the compilation of the actual Qur'an that you have today. The coins, spelled with a C obviously, you can't spell, but you're fine. Concerns the lack of numismatic evidence from the Rashidun period and from the entire Islamic period up until about 691 AD. And the quest concerns the quest, the, the issue of who was Muhammad? Who is this guy who's supposedly so central to the entire um, history of Islam? Who is this guy? He's not who you think he is. All of this is the result of intensive research by a number of scholars from all around the world. It's a very fascinating stuff. So let's start with the Qiblas. One of the core doctrinal elements of Islam is that Mecca is the oldest city in the world, right? That's what they believe. Here's the problem. When you actually go to Mecca and you look at what the, um, the, the, not just the Quran says, but all the, like all of the exegesis around the Quran says, it's very hard to see why they chose this particular place as the birthplace of all mankind. See, Unlike the Bible, which is a self-contained document, the Qur'an cannot be read by itself. Uh, as I will point out later on, the Qur'an in and of itself is actually a seriously problematic document. Um, the Qur'an set, mentions Mecca only like you know, a few times, but it talks about a place called Bakka. Bakka is what Islamic scholars interpret as Mecca, and you can't really understand that until you look at the uh, all the other documents surrounding the Quran, which were compiled at a much later date, by the way. Um, you have to look at the Hadith, the Sirah, the Tafsir and Tahrik, the, uh, the sayings of Muhammad, the biography of Muhammad, Sirat, Sirat Rasulullah, um, the histories of all mankind and the commentaries. Uh, could have that order reversed, I don't speak Arabic, but whatever. Um, at any rate, these documents lay out the foundational doctrinal basis of Islam, and they aren't actually fully compiled until 300 years after Muhammad's death. But, you know, we'll get to that. Mecca, supposedly in the Quran, 
is an incredibly fertile place. It's in a valley. It's with a parallel valley. There's a stream running through it. There's water available, you know, quite abundantly available. Um, there are olive trees growing around Mecca. The, 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 the soil is full of clay and loam. Uh, there are two hills, Safra and Marwa. Uh, that, you know, supposedly that's where, according to Islamic doctrine, that's where, um, Hagar and her son Ishmael, um, you know, the, Mecca is where they, they came and, and they, like, uh, Hagar ran back and forth between Safra and Marwa to get water for her son. Um, modern day Mecca, has none of those features. Nothing described, what I just described, exists in Mecca today. Furthermore, if Mecca is truly the oldest city of all mankind, why haven't they found anything there? They've been digging huge skyscrapers into Mecca, which means that they've been digging deep underground into the soil. They have not found anything to support the existence of a 10,000-year-old city. It doesn't exist. They haven't even found anything to support the existence of a 4,000-year-old city. Supposedly, this is where Abraham went to destroy the pagan sanctuary known as the Kaaba and wipe out the pagan gods that were there. That didn't happen either because uh, Abraham was all the way up in uh, Ur in Mesopotamia, which is thousands of kilometers to the northeast of Mecca, or in modern-day Mecca. Furthermore, looking at... Uh, Dan Gibson's scholarship is very fascinating in this regard. He looked at uh, the directions of prayer of all of the early Islamic mosques, and he went to hundreds of them. He directly challenged the authority of the world kind of guru on Islamic Qiblas, a man named uh, David King, Dr. David King, who apparently you know, published the work, seminal work on the subject. But Dr. David King only ever went to one mosque to check out which direction the Qibla faced. The Qibla is a direction of prayer, and for those, you know, for, for my Christian brothers who are listening, um, mosques are not laid out the way churches are. Churches, when we walk into a church, the church is laid out in the shape of a cross. So, you know, we, it, it's a long, narrow kind of corridor which faces the altar and then there's wings on the side and the, the, the entire plan of the building is basically that of a cross. Um, we sit in pews and we face the altar and we face, you know, um, the icon or the, the, the cross or whatever and we worship in, in, in a congregation like that. Uh, Muslim mosques are built very differently. They, they are built to face one particular direction so that everyone can stand in a line facing exactly the same direction. Um, that direction of prayer is supposed to be Mecca, and supposedly originally it was Jerusalem. But that's not true. Dan Gibson went and looked at, you know, over a hundred early mosques, and all built, you know, from about 480 AD, which doesn't make sense, but I'll get to why in a moment, to about 750 AD, so almost a 300-year span. Now, wait a second. How are there mosques in 480 or 500 AD? How does that happen? You know, Islam didn't exist as a religion until 200 years later. The answer to that will follow. But for now, Let's note that Dan Gibson went to each of these mosques and he looked at the direction of prayer and he took measurements, very accurate measurements of the directions of prayer. And then he measured, uh, the, 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 um, the actual line of direction of prayer using the Aster satellites, Japanese satellites, which, uh, map geographic data. Super accurate. And he 
looked at the, the lines of prayer accounting for the curvature of the earth and you know, went through some very complex mathematical calculations. What he found was absolutely stunning. Every single one of those early mosques, including one in Cherman in southern India and another one in Guangzhou in China, both of which predate Islam, were pointing in the direction of one city called Petra. Petra, the home of the Nabataean Arabs. And this is the case for almost every single mosque that he could find up until about the early 8th century, so 705, something like that. What the hell's going on? How is that possible? The answer is that Islam, as we understand it, actually started thousands of, hundreds of, if not thousands of kilometers farther north and uh, in a very, very different environment than what we've been told. Islam, as we know it today, is a false religion because it started on false premises. It did not start in Southern Arabia. It started in Petra, in Jordan. That is the original Mecca. And the description of Mecca in the Quran fits perfectly, perfectly with what is in Petra. Even the dimensions of the Kaaba, as described in Islamic literature, match perfectly with the dimensions of the main temple of Dushara, the, the, the Nabataean kind of patriarch god, um, who, you know, presided over all of uh, the Nabataean religion. This, combined with the rest of the satellite data, pointed out that uh, Petra was the center of Islamic power for a very long time. But then Gibson noticed something very funny going on. The directions of prayer changed abruptly, in, you know, in the early 8th century. They changed to somewhere, somewhere in between what is today Petra and what is today Mecca. There was a point somewhere in between, like halfway in between, and all the mosques suddenly faced that direction. Some of them still faced Petra, some of them faced this new direction. And then eventually, around the time, you know, mosques being built in the Abbasid period, so the mid-8th century, the mosques started to face Mecca. And some of the mosques in, uh, in Spain and in North Africa started to face a line parallel to this line between Petra and Mecca. What the hell is going on? The answer, it seems, is a political gesture. There was a major civil war brewing at the time between the old Umayyads, the Arab um, rulers who extended their empire out into North Africa and uh, through into Spain with the Moors and the Abbasids, the Persians in the east, the remnants of the old Sassanian empire who came to power overthrew, you know, what was left, uh, took over the Umayyads, exterminated them and then put their seat of power over in Damascus, uh, and Baghdad and, you know, the, uh, sort of the, um, the, the more west, uh, the more eastern, uh, parts of the, uh, Arab world. Now, this leads us on to the Qibla, uh, the, the Qira'at issue. So, we have our first major clue. Islam did not start in southern Arabia. It actually started in northern Arabia, in Petra, among the Nabataean Arabs. Now, let's look at the Qira'ats. What are the Qira'ats? Well, the problem is nobody really knows. 
Muslims themselves don't know. It's one of, it's probably the single most irritating and thorny issue in all of Islam. They can't figure out what the hell these things are. Supposedly, the, the traditions say, or the, you know, the, the, the traditions and the Quran say that, um, the Qira'at are seven different recitations, the different ways of saying the same thing. Muhammad was taught seven different ways of saying the same verse. But this, this doesn't make any sense because, you know, Muslims interpret this as dialectical differences. Well, you know, they speak a different dialect of Arabic in Egypt versus in, in Iraq versus in Lebanon versus in Arabia. Okay, maybe they do. I don't know. I mean, maybe. But how the hell would Muhammad have known this if he never left southern Arabia, if he never left uh, the Hejaz region, which is supposedly what uh, Muslims believe? That didn't happen. Like, he didn't go north magically. I mean, he did, you know, according to the, the whole, the whole uh, ascension from the Dome of the Rock story in the Quran, uh, whatever, fine. But that didn't, I mean, he never actually physically left the Hejaz region and went to northern Arabia. That didn't happen. So he could not possibly have been exposed to... A different dialect. But the Qira'at are a huge problem for the early Islamic narrative because the Qira'at are basically different ways of saying or, or of, of writing and reading the Quran. This problem was first exposed in um, the 1920s in uh, Ottoman-controlled Egypt. Uh, the Ottomans at the time, you know, they were, their power was very much waning they realized that they had a serious problem. They had standardized tests for the Quran and kids were just memorizing their Qurans and, and regurgitating back what they'd been taught. But they kept giving different answers to standardized tests. And the authorities were like, what the hell is going on? They looked into the issue and they realized that all the students had different Qurans. Some were using a Hafs version of the Quran. Some were using a Warsh version of the Quran. Some were using um, a, a derivation known as Ibn Kathir. Some were using one by a guy named Kalun. Some were using Ibn Amr, some were using uh, 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 Asim, some were using uh, you know, all these different Qur'ans. What? Whoa, 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 hold it, hold it. We've always been taught there's only one Qur'an. There's only one book, the book of all books. It's only one Qur'an, right? Supposedly. No. There are actually over 30 different versions of the Qur'an out there today. Let that sink in for a moment. There are a minimum of 37 different versions of the Quran. Some of them are splits of the same, like, original reader. This is where it gets really mind-boggling, because basically what happened was, as it turns out, the Quran was written down supposedly in 634 AD, a couple of years after Muhammad died. And the idea was that um, the second... Uh, rightly guided caliph, um, Umar, well actually Abu Bakr. Um, Abu Bakr, uh, went to Muhammad's secretary. So the first caliph, uh, Abu Bakr, went to Muhammad's secretary, Zayd ibn Tabit, and said to him, okay, we need a written down version of the Quran because people keep losing it. People keep forgetting it. Again, this directly contradicts what Muslims keep saying, which is that the Quran has never been altered, never been changed. It's, what we read today is exactly the same as what Muhammad had in 632 AD. No, it isn't. That's bullshit. That's absolutely untrue. Zayd ibn Tabit writes down this Quran. He takes bits of leaves and, and, and bark and, and bone and, and, and what's memorized in his head and he writes it all down. 
This is the book of books, supposedly. Ab uh, Abu Bakr takes it and puts it under the bed of Muhammad's wife, Hafsa, for 20 years. Okay, I mean, Muslims, do you realize how stupid this sounds? Do you realize how dumb this is, this entire idea? You have the book of books, and instead of putting it out there and giving it to people, you park it under Muhammad's wife's bed. What? How? How does this make sense? Please explain it to us. But anyway, um, this, you know, this, this Quran stays hidden for decades. And 20 years later, um, uh, Uthman comes along and he realizes that, uh, because, uh, his, his lieutenant, uh, Hudaifa went, goes up, for, uh, to fight with, um, uh, Christians in Azerbaijan. Uh, he, a uh, fight against Christians, rather, with a bunch of Muslims in Azerbaijan. And he, he, Hudaifa hears the Quran being recited before the battle in something very different from what he's used to hearing. And he gets really angry. I mean, this, all of this is part of the traditions, by the way. He gets very angry and the Muslims, you know, the, 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 the Arabian Muslims and the Azerbaijani Muslims come to blows. They beat the shit out of each other because they're so angry at the fact that they're reciting things in different ways. Hudaifa comes back down to supposedly Medina um, and supposedly tells uh, Uthman, we got a huge problem here. We cannot have different Qur'ans the way that the Jews and Christians have different Bibles. Uthman orders Zaid ibn Tabit to take out the Hafsa Qur'an and... Uh, tells him to sit down with three of his sons-in-law and come up with a Quran in the quote-unquote Qurayshi dialect. Well, again, Muslims, do you realize how dumb this sounds? You can't have a written-down dialect. A dialect is something that comes out of your tongue. H how do I explain this? Um, English is English, no matter where you go. I, okay, I mean, yes, all right, you know, the Americans misspell everything and they drop all the, the, the U's when they should keep them in and they, they mispronounce everything. They don't speak English, okay? Like, I, I love to rib Americans about this. I love to say, y'all don't speak English, because they don't. But an American can understand a Brit, can understand a Scot, can understand an Irishman, can understand an Australian, because they're all basically speaking the same language. They just have different ways of pronouncing things. They have different ways of, uh, they have different idioms, they have different inflections, but they're all speaking the same language. They write in the same way. They write the same words. You cannot compile things in a different dialect. It can't be done. Muslims insist, however, that you can compile things in the Qur'ayshi dialect. You can't. There is no Qur'ayshi dialect to compile in. In order to read Arabic in a dialect, in a dialectical difference, you need something called diacritical markings. You need uh, the, the, the alephs and the, the dots and, and, and vowel markings. That didn't exist at the time that the Quran was supposedly compiled. It didn't happen. So none of this makes any sense. Furthermore, the first recitations of the Quran start appearing not in 652, which is when the first so-called copy of the Quran supposedly was written down, the first canonized version, which in and of itself doesn't make sense because the first true version of the Quran was supposedly written down in 634, you now have multiple Qurans emerging out of northern Arabia, not the south, not in the Hejaz region. All of the, or almost all of the early manuscripts for the Quran and all of the early variants and all of the readings started coming out of Damascus, Kufa, which is in Iraq, 
Baghdad, which was known as Ctesiphon uh, uh, back in the day, however you pronounce it, um, and uh, Al-Qahira or Al-Fustat, as it was known, you know, as Cairo was known back in the day. That's where all these variant versions of the Quran are coming out. And you have dozens, if not hundreds, of different variants of the Quran. This gets to be such a huge problem that actually Islamic scholars have to sit down and figure out which ones are, are, are the best. Now, when we look at the Bible, we as Christians look at the Bible, what do we do? When we try to do textual criticism, what do we do? We have 25,000 manuscripts to look at, with 500,000 differences in the, the, across all the manuscripts of the New Testament. How do we do textual criticism? We open up the manuscripts and we look at them and we compare them with the ones that are the oldest. And if the ones that are newer agree with the ones that are older, then we accept that the ones that are newer are probably accurate. We have done that exercise of textual criticism. We have gone through and looked at all 500,000 variants of the, the New Testament in Greek and Latin and so on. Less than 1% of those differences are actually meaningful. And not one of those differences changes one iota of doctrine or dogma for a Christian. Not one. That is astonishing. Today, we have at least 37 different Qur'ans in existence. There are 93,000 and counting differences between all 37 variants. Some of them are very severe doctrinal and dogmatic differences. The one that stands out to mind the most is the one about, actually since it's, you know, since we just got through Ramadan, let's talk about that one. There is a difference between the Hafs Qur'an, which is the standard version used by every, like 98% or 95% of all Muslims worldwide, and the Warsh Qur'an, which is very popular in North Africa. The Hafs Qur'an says you must feed, if you cannot fast, you must feed one poor person. Poor person, singular. The, the Warsh version says poor, pe- poor persons, plural. And remember, Arabic is a Semitic language. So when it says poor persons, plural, it is three or more people. It is not one or two. It's three or more. So how many poor people are you supposed to feed? That's a massive doctrinal difference. It's enormous. And it's just one of 5,000 differences between just Hafs and Warsh. So no, Muslims, you do not have one Quran that is standard for the entire world that goes back to 632 AD that is exactly the same as the copy that sits in heaven. You don't have that. You have a massive problem with your Qiraats. You have a... Quran that has gone through at least five different compilations is Dr. Shari Nasser of Cambridge. He did his PhD at Harvard. He's now teaching at Cambridge University. Um, has shown in his original book, which was about the variant readings of the Quran and, uh, the, you know, the, the transmission of the Quran and his upcoming book, which is about the, uh, the five stages of canonization of the Quran. He calls them the five stages. The first was yeah, again, supposedly, because we don't even know if any of this is true. The first was the Zayd ibn Tabit um, Abu Bakr uh, compilation. The second was the Uthmanic, comp- the, the Uthmanic recension. And by the way, when Uthman got the Quran, he burned all the other copies. Why would you burn all the other copies? Unless they fundamentally disagree with what you are trying to say. So indeed, the Quran was changed. Why would you burn copies if they're not changed from what you believe? He burned them for a reason, a political reason, not 
not because he was trying to preserve anything. He burned them because they disagreed with his view of the world. Then you get to the third kind of uh, recension, which is when um, uh, Al-Tabri, no, actually, I think it's uh, Al-Jazri, and the, the, there are another three stages. Basically, Al-Tabri, Al-Shatibi, and Al-Jazri. And I think Al-Jazri is the latest, uh, the, 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 the most distant. It's in the Ottoman times, actually. Um, you know, th there are another two stages where basically you have uh, seven readers of the Quran and three uh, transmitters, uh, if you will, riwayat uh, uh, of, of the Qur'an. These are added in sometime in the mid-8th century. Then you have, in the 10th century, a further recension, because you still have this proliferation of Qur'ans, and another 20 or so readers and transmitters are added to, the, to, to make the, a list of 30 official ones. But you still have a huge problem. So in the 14th century, um, I think Al, uh, Al, what's his name? Al Jazri comes along. I think it's Al Jazri. You know, you can go look it up for yourself. I could easily be wrong. Comes along and reduces it back down to like supposedly seven, right? Supposedly. And then in 1924, you have, uh, the Al Azhar University official kind of stamp of approval on the 1924 Kyrene edition, which is the Hafs Quran. Why Hafs? Why was Hafs chosen? Hafs was not one of Muhammad's original companions. He came 150 years later. Hafs was not considered reliable. He was actually called out, you know, his, his compilation of the Quran was called out by scholars at the time, saying this is a bad translation, it's a bad transmission. He was not from Mecca or Medina. He was actually from Egypt. He was, uh, no, no, sorry, not from Egypt, from, um, from Syria, I think. Uh, he was not from the region that, you know, he should have been. He was not of a reliable stable of transmitters. This guy was considered unreliable, flaky, bad, not, you know, all sorts of horrible things. All of his contemporaries derided his transmission of the Quran and said, this is not to be trusted. So why was he used? Because his Arabic was easy to read for the Ottomans. That's why. When they came along in the 14th century or thereabouts, they found the, the Hafs transmission and they said, we like this one because it's easy to read. That's the only reason it is considered to be the best Quran. It's not. It's not even close to the best Quran. We don't know what the best Quran was. We don't have the original. And that leads to the next massive problem. Remember what I said earlier about how the Quran was written down twice. Supposedly, when Uthman wrote down or when Uthman got Zaid ibn Thabit and these three other sons-in-law, who they were not scholars, by the way, they were just people who were politically connected to him, to write down this supposed one Qur'an and send it out to all the major cities in the Islamic Empire at the time. Supposedly, he burned all the other copies. Okay, maybe that happened. It's very unlikely, but maybe that happened. Then, you should be able to find one Uthmanic Qur'an today. We can't find one. It doesn't exist. And before Muslims come back and tell me, well, you don't have the original Bible, dude, we have two massive codices of the New Testament sitting in the British Library. We have the Alexandrinus and the Petropolitanus. Um, uh, no, sorry, the, 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 the Alexandrinus and the, we have the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, um, and the Alexandrinus as well. Um, these three manuscripts, uh, date back to 
the late third and uh, no, sorry, the late fourth and fifth cent and early fifth centuries. That's a good uh, three, four hundred years before the Quran was put on paper, and we have pretty much the entire New Testament. Don't come to me and tell me we can't recompile the New Testament. We have, as I said, damn near twenty-five thousand manuscripts. We have uh, five thousand Latin Vulgates. We have four thousand some Greek uh, manuscripts. We have nine thousand manuscripts in other languages. We have uh, over like over eighty thousand quotations just from the early church fathers. Um, a huge number of them dating back to within the first three hundred years of Christianity. If we just go based on the church quotation, the, the quotations from the church fathers written down by men like Oregon and, uh, you know, um, a few others, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. That's how good our chain of transmission is. That's how reliable our New Testament is. We don't have the problems you have. We don't have to worry about the issues you have with respect to textual veracity. We can rebuild our entire New Testament and we can be sure that what we have is correct. That's how much faith we have in our texts. You don't have that. Why? Because you cannot find a single, single parchment or papyrus manuscript going back to 622. Actually, you can't even find it going back to 652. Show us that manuscript. Now, Muslims will try to respond by telling you, well, we have these five ancient, you know, massive codices. Um, okay, you have the Topkapi, which is in Istanbul. You have the Samarkand, which uh, is, I think, uh, in Russia right now. It's um, somewhere in the uh, National Museum in Russia, I think. The Petropolitanus, which is, I think, in Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, in Paris. Uh, pardon my French. Uh, you have the Ma'il, which is the slanted codex. Uh, I forget exactly where that is. It might be in the British Library. And you have the Sana'a manuscript, which is the most recently discovered. It's actually a palimpsest, which um, what that means is it's a papyrus which has two layers on it. So basically, what, uh, sorry, not papyrus, it's parchment, it's animal skin, where you have one layer of writing, um, stuff was written down on it, and then it was scrubbed clean, it was wiped off. And somebody came along and wrote another text on it. Two Islamic scholars did very detailed studies into these manuscripts. Ekmeledin Isanulu and Tayyir al uh Turkish scholars. They did very detailed, in-depth studies on all of these manuscripts. Guess what they concluded? Not one of these major manuscripts is Uthmanic. They cannot safely conclude that this, you know, these were written any time before about 690, 700 AD. The Islamic world does not have the original Quran. That's how big a problem they have. They don't have the Quran. They don't have it. They can't produce it. They pretend they have it, but it's nonsense. And here's the other massive problem with the Quran. The Quran is written in Arabic, as you know. Here's the issue. The script used to write down the Quran is known as scriptus, uh, script. Tura defect, uh, scriptus defectivus or something like that. It's a defective script. The reason it's defective is because um, of all of the Arabic letters, there's only like six of them which are actually truly unique. You don't need any dots or vowelizations to make sense of them. But with all of the other Arabic letters, they basically look 
kind of very similar to each other. Um, they look like squiggles. And you need to put dots, two dots above and three dots below, uh, in, and, and different combinations of dots change the, the meanings of the letters. And, uh, they, they change them into consonants, whether they're hard consonants or soft consonants. They ch- uh, you also have three vowels, and in order to vowelize the letters, you need diacritical marks. The early manuscripts of the Quran do not have this feature. You can't read them, because in the Nabataean Aramaic script in which the original Quran was written, those dots and vowels did not exist until the late 7th century at the earliest. So how the hell did they, why did they write the Quran? Supposedly, the book of books, the greatest you know, revelation of all mankind, in a script that couldn't accommodate it. Furthermore, why did they choose Nabataean Aramaic to write the Quran? Why did they not use the Sabaic Arabic script used in the actual Hejaz Peninsula, or the, the, the Hejaz region of the Arabian Peninsula? Why didn't they do that? The answer is because, again, every single thing we know about Islam is wrong. Islam did not start in Hejaz. It started in the Nabataean Empire. So, what does the Quran say? Well, the Quran, as it happens, is about 70% plagiarized from Jewish and um, apocryphal or Gnostic Christian sources. Many of the stories in the Quran are lifted straight out of places like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic text. It's not at all accurate. It was written in the second century by somebody who definitely wasn't St. Thomas. Um, the, uh, the, the some, uh, something uh, from some named Esther, the Bar Esther or something like that. The, the, the whole story of Queen of Sheba meeting Solomon, um, that is lifted straight out of a Jewish apocryphal text. That whole line uh, in the Quran, the one that Muslims love to quote, you know, uh, chapter 5, verse 37 or something it is, uh, he who saves one life is as though he has saved the life of the whole world, and he who takes one life is as though he has killed the whole world, uh, whatever, right? They, they love to quote that verse. You know what? You know where that comes from? It comes from uh, a little note scribbled in the margin of um, the story of Cain and Abel by a Jewish scribe, and it's contained in, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a different commentary by a Jewish author. And it only, by the way, refers to the children of Israel. It does not refer to anybody else. Muslims cannot take advantage of that source. It only refers to Jews. And everyone seems to forget the next verse that comes along, the very next one that comes along, which says that anyone who insults the, the religion, of, of, you know, who, who denies the scriptures of, of Islam, denies the validity of it, uh, crucify him and cut off his hands and feet on opposite sides of his body. Everyone kind of conveniently forgets that. Why, then, do we take the Qur'an seriously? We can't. There's nothing to be taken seriously about it. We don't have the original Qur'an. We don't have the original document. The source material has gone completely missing. It's stupid what they claim, but they continue to claim it anyway. The Qur'an as we have it today is not the Qur'an that was revealed to a so-called figure named Muhammad. I know I'm going to run over. I mean, it's going to be, go on for another 20 minutes at least. Um, so bear with me, but there's a lot to say here. There's probably going to be the very first really, really long-running podcast in a while. The Qur'an as we have it today is not the Qur'an as it was originally written down. 
Dr. Daniel Brubaker has gone through uh, the, the early manuscripts and he was expecting to find you know, four or five maybe corrections and, and changes. The Kira'at issue, as that I mentioned earlier, is devastating on a popular level. Because Muslims who grew up hearing there's only one Quran, there's only one Quran, there's only... No, there's like, there's 30 of them or more. And there were probably hundreds of them at one point. And actually your Quran has been redacted and changed and updated many, 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 many times. In fact, the Quran that Muslims have today is younger than me. The, the you know, final, final, final version, well, it's about my age. Um, the final version of the Quran uh, was canonized in 1985, the King Fahd edition of the Quran. That's the one that everyone uses today. It's a Hafs Quran. It was finally canonized in 1985. It's about my age. I'm probably older than their Quran. That's how untenable their position is. The final point, uh, with respect to the, the, the Quran, or the Quranic manuscripts, I should say, not, not the final point, but the issue with the Quranic manuscripts is absolutely devastating on a fundamental level. The popular level, you know, is scary enough, but on the fundamental doctrinal level, it's absolutely devastating. No Islamic scholar can seriously claim with a straight face anymore that the Quran has remained unchanged, unaltered, undiluted. Because there absolutely have been insertions, alterations, corrections, and updates to early Quranic manuscripts. Dr. Daniel Brubaker found this in multiple manuscripts, uh, particularly with the Sana'a and Topkapi manuscripts. He published a short book with about 20 examples of them, and he's going to be publishing more books that go deeper into this issue and show that there are hundreds of such alterations. Hundreds. That is on top of the fact that you can't really read the original manuscripts because they lack all the diacritical markings. And that is on top of the fact, that is on top of the fact, that none of these manuscripts date back to the Uthmanic period. You can't find it. You can't find the original Uthmanic recension. It doesn't exist. So that is the argument you use whenever a Muslim comes up to you and says, we have the, you know, the greatest revelation. No, you don't. Show it to me. Show me where is the original Quran. Show it to me. They can't. Because it doesn't exist. That leads us on to the fourth huge problem with early Islamic history, the coins. You would think that because of you know, all of this glorious history from 632 AD, you know, all this massive conquest that the Islamic Empire went through, uh, all of this upheaval and, and, and change and, and craziness that happened between 632 and about 705, you would expect to see during the Rashidun period, those four rightly guided caliphs between 632 and 661, you would expect to see a rich variety of coins and archaeological evidence. There isn't any. The coins from that period have either Zoroastrian fire altars or Christian crosses on them. What the frack? How does that make sense? Supposedly, this is a religion that can't stand Jesus Christ. It can't stand the cross. The cross is anathema to Muslims. They, the very idea of the cross horrifies them. As far as they are concerned, uh, uh, Jesus, or as, as, as they call him, Issa, who is not Jesus, by the way, Issa in Arabic is a transliteration of Esau in Hebrew. 
It's not Yeshua, it's Esau. They've got the wrong Jesus, just like they've got the wrong everything else, but they've got the wrong Jesus, and that's fundamental. They acknowledge Jesus as the greatest of all the prophets. Yes, they acknowledge Jesus as the one who will come back in time, you know, when, at the end times and judge mankind. But they deny that he died on the cross. They deny that he was resurrected. So they've essentially destroyed the entire concept of substitutionary atonement. They've destroyed the entire concept of uh, propitiation for sins uh, based on the shedding of holy blood. Their entire religion is a religion of works as a result. You can only ever do good things in Allah's sight, and that's how you will be rewarded. And by the way, their God, Allah, is not the God. It's, it's not. That's not the name of God. The name for Allah actually comes from Ilaha, the Nabataean generic term for the king of their gods, Dushara. That is their God. It is not Yahweh. It is not I am that I am. That's not him. It's not God the Father. It's a pagan God, which is why Islam has so many pagan traditions, right down to what they worship in the Kaaba. The, the, the black stone is a pagan idol. Their tradition of running around or milling around the, the, the Kaaba is a pagan tradition. Their tradition of stoning the three devils. Why, why are there three devils? There's only supposed to be one shaitan in Islam. Why are they stoning three devils? Pagan tradition. Where do all these traditions come from? They come from the Nabataean religion upon which Islam is based. The issue of the coins is fundamental to un unraveling the entire historical so-called narrative behind Islam. It doesn't exist. The rightly guided caliphs didn't exist. We don't have evidence for them the way that we expected to. We don't have numismatic evidence. We don't have rock inscriptions that depict them. There's like one rock inscription that could have been about anybody named um, named Umar. Uh, there is simply nothing there. There's nothing to indicate that these supposedly amazing caliphs actually existed. It's not there. Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, Sufi Islam, they all believe this. There's nothing to support it. No evidence. And that is before we get to the single most devastating problem with Islam. We can't find any evidence of a man named Muhammad from the Hashem tribe who was an orphan, who went on all these incredible adventures, conquered most of the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, and after he died, you know, the Islamic Empire expanded without him. What we do find, however, is even more interesting. And this is where Dr. Robert Spencer's book, um, Did Muhammad Exist? Did Muhammad Exist? Excuse me comes in very handy. Dr. Robert Spencer wrote that book in 2012. It is now 2021. We now have some very fascinating evidence uncovered by uh, Mel from Sneakers Corner looking into who Muhammad actually was. Note that everything I've said so far tells us that Islam, in its original form, was very distinctly a Northern Arabian religion. It was, it has its roots in Nabataean Aram, in pagan Nabataean practices. Who was this figure Muhammad? As he is described in the Quran and most particularly the Sirah, he doesn't exist. 
The Sirah, by the way, the Sirat al-Rasulullah, which is supposedly written by Ibn Ishaq, was not written by Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Ishaq supposedly wrote the Sirat al-Rasulullah sometime in the mid-7th uh, century, uh, sorry, 8th century. No, he didn't. Because about, you know, about a, a few decades later, along comes this guy named Ibn Hisham, looks at what Ibn Ishaq wrote down, and throws away most of it. He only keeps the bits that he actually likes. Why? Hmm. When was Ibn Hisham writing? Oh, wait a second, he was writing during the Abbasid period. The Abbasids had a political agenda. Furthermore, if you look at the Hadith, if you look at uh, what Al-Bukhari compiled, where was Al-Bukhari from? He was from Bukhara. Bukhara is about 4,000 kilometers away from Mecca. Bukhara is over in what is now known as, I think, Tajikistan. Uh, let me check that, actually. could be wrong about that. But I mean, it's a long freaking way away from so-called Mecca. Um, it's it, uh, Al-Tabri. Uh, it's actually in Uzbekistan, excuse me. It's one of the, one of the Ukstan countries, obviously. Um, Al-Bukhari compiled, you know, all like 7,000 some, 7,200 odd hadith from an original collection of like 600,000 sayings about the Prophet. And he throws away about 98% of them. What was the other 98% about? Why did he throw all those away? Well, for one thing, because he was writing in the 9th century. So something happened between 632, supposedly when this guy Muhammad existed, and the 9th century when al-Bukhari compiled the hadith into six massive volumes. What happened? Who was this guy? Well, as Dr. Robert Spencer points out, he was probably an amalgamation of three to four characters. Who? One of them was probably historical. The other three are biblical. Because if you read into the character Muhammad very carefully, you'll see that he his story reflects a number of traits of Joshua of Nun, Moses, and Jesus. And the, the Quran, being the confused mess that it is, messes up the stories of Jesus and Moses and, and, and various other people quite badly, mangles them completely. What about the fourth figure? Who was the fourth guy? Who was this guy? We may know who he was. The real Muhammad was probably a man named Ilyas ibn Kabisa al-Tayaye, the king of the Tayaye tribe in Hira. He lived sometime between about 600 and 640 AD, something like that. He was a loyal vassal, based on the evidence that Mel from Sneaker's Corner uncovered, of the Sassanian Persians, who appointed him as the king of about 30 towns and villages in the Lakhmid Arabian region of Iraq. This was not a poor orphan. This was a rich man, and he was a Christian. He was an historian Christian, but he was a Christian. He was a Gnostic. I mean, the Nestorians were heretics by you know, our, our modern standards. He believed in a very different doctrinal version of Christianity than we did. But he was an Arab oppressed by Persians. So what did he do? 
around about 622 AD. 622 is a very pivotal date. Why is 622 so important? Again, it's the start of the Hijra, right? Around about 622 AD, Ilyas ibn Kabisa al-Tayyaye, also known as Kabsha, and also, by the way, known in his nom de guerre, his fighting name, as Muhammad, because there is no record of Muhammad, apparently, I'm just you know, going based on what I've heard here, there is no real record of Muhammad being a proper noun, a name, before sort of 630 or thereabouts. So somebody named Muhammad could not have been born in 570, right? Because the, the name Muhammad didn't really exist. But Muhammad as a title existed. So this guy Muhammad, you know, uh, Kabsha flees from Hira, where he is based, after launching a rebellion against the Sassanians. He is defeated in battle. He flees to Nabatea. He flees to Petra. He flees to the sanctuary city of the Nabataean Arabs, his people. There he builds an alliance with the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius, who had just gotten a serious kicking from the Sassanians in about 618 thereabouts. Much of the eastern half of the Byzantine Empire had been lost to the Sassanians, and the, Sassani the, the, the Byzantines had to retreat all the way back to Constantinople, basically. In six, from 618 to about 625 AD, Emperor Heraclius mounts one of the greatest comebacks in human history. He fights back against the Sassanians. He breaks them repeatedly in battle. He destroys their armies. He enlists the help of Arabs, Lakhmid and Ghassanid Arabs, against the Persians, pushes them all the way back, breaks their empire, and goes back in victory to Byzantium. But the conflict drains Byzantine resources to such a degree that he can't really administer the far-lying you know, regions that he's conquered. So he enlists the help of someone like uh, Kabsha, this Muhammad guy. That is the most likely origin story of Muhammad. Not the illiterate orphaned warlord, uh, caravan robber really, of the Quran. A Christian from Hira, rich, who ruled over multiple villages and a vast swath of territory by, you know, standards of those days. Loyal vassal of the Persians, who rebelled because he was sick and tired of seeing his people being abused, fled westward to Petra, came back under the protection of the Christians, built an empire for himself. Eventually, his descendants under Muawiyah and Abdul Malik rebelled, particularly Muawiyah, rebelled against Christian authority, rebelled against the power of Constantinople. Because during the time of Muawiyah, that's when you see the coins with the, in the east, with the Zoroastrian fire altar on one side, and in the west, with the Christian cross on one side. And then there's a particular point after about 661 AD when the coins suddenly change character completely. That's when you start seeing this so-called Bismillah, part of the Bismillah, the, you know, the, the evocation of Allah as the supreme deity. And you start seeing Abdul Malik's, uh, excuse me, Muawiyah's visage on these coins. You start seeing a direct and very clear break with the power of Byzantium. There's a separate Arab identity being established in that region. 
And now we have the full story. We now understand why Islam is what it is. Islam is not a unique religion. It is in fact a heresy. It is a man-made cobbled together faith, which is why so much of it doesn't make sense. If you look at the Quran, the early Quran, most of it doesn't make sense if you read it in Arabic. It only makes sense if you read it in Syriac or Aramaic, which makes perfect sense once you realize that it was written originally in Nabataean Aramaic. Most of the stories aren't complete. Most of the, much of the Quran is borrowed. 70% of it is plagiarized, roughly speaking. That makes sense once you realize the context in which this new empire took form. The Arabs went from vassals of the Persians or the Christians to a power in their own right. They weren't used to this because the Nabataeans did not have a military empire. They had a trading empire. They weren't used to maintaining military power over everyone. They were ruling over a vast territory with Jews and Christians in it. Jews and Christians had their own prophetic tradition, their own prophetic lines, their own scriptures. Arabs were seen as pagan outsiders who the, the monotheistic Jews and Christians would not obey. So what did the Arab rulers do? They created a new religion out of whole cloth. They created a prophetic tradition by using this mythical figure named Muhammad. And probably, because we don't know, we have no insight into those early days, probably the Quran as it was written back then, the historical basis of their prophet as it was back then is very different from what we have today because we don't know what they wrote down back then. We All the copies have been destroyed. All of the biographies have been rewritten. That was during the Umayyad period and it was only during the Umayyad period that you first saw the first true challenge to uh, Christian Trinitarianism. It's on the Dome of the Rock. The inscription on the Dome of the Rock says, say not three but one for you know, basically attacking the very concept of the Trinity, attacking the divinity of Jesus Christ, saying that there is only one God. And they build the Dome of the Rock, by the way, in Jerusalem, overlooking the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, our most sacred, our most holy site. Why do they do that? It's a political statement. That starts in about 691 AD. If I got the dates wrong, by the way, forgive me, I'm going based on memory. But if you want the correct dates, just go to Founder Films and look all this stuff up. It's right there. Finally, the Umayyads and the Abbasids go to war with each other. The Abbasids are Persians out in the east. They're you know, coming out of the remnants of the old Sassanian Empire. They are Nestorian Christians or pagans or are converting to a uh, a rapidly spreading version, a thriving version of Reform Judaism known as the Ebionite heresy. The Ebionites adopt a lot of, you know, like they, they take Jewish canon law as like given. The, the dietary restrictions, the, 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 the laws against idolatry and, and adultery and all that, they, they consider that as given. They consider Jesus Christ to be a prophet, but they don't consider him to be the prophet. This is exactly where, you know, uh, King Khosrau II comes in. And if you want more information about him, go read up um, on a post called um, uh, Balls. 
the unsupportable heresy. I wrote it uh, several years ago. It's I go into detail about this, and there's a book on which I base that post, which you can go read as well. It's a superb book by Emmett Scott, um, The Impact of Islam. Got to read that book. It's phenomenal. So all of this I unpack in you know in, in, in several posts. But basically, what you're looking at is a political religion. You're looking at the Abbasids coming in, conquering the Umayyads, taking the Umayyad narrative and retuning it, retailoring it for themselves. And you see them, like, the character of Muhammad goes through a lot of revisions and becomes actually quite an embarrassing character. Why? Because they're Persians trying to embarrass the crap out of the Arabs. What happens after that? The Arabs come back in, take over the political structure of the caliphate again. Now, this, this takes place in the 9th century, in the 10th century. But eventually, you will see that the Persian character of the early Islamic empire is wiped out and it's replaced with a fundamentally Arab character. The key thing to draw from all of this is that our Muslim friends worship a lie. It's that simple. They have spent 1,400 years promoting and promulgating a lie. So if you are Islamic and you, you know, you're seeing your faith being shaken by some of these revelations, understand something. You want something that we Christians already have. You want a God who understands you and who listens to you, listens to your prayers and who forgives you for your sins. You do it based on works. We do it based on faith. You believe in the end times. We believe in the end times. You believe in Jesus Christ. You love Jesus. We love Jesus too. Everybody loves Jesus. How can you not love Jesus? He's amazing. He's the greatest human being because he was God, is God, that ever existed. How can you not love Jesus? You want what we have. Come on home. You want a God that you can believe in, who loves you and wants you to be saved. We have that God. His name is Jesus Christ. You want a book and a revelation that is true. You don't have it. We do. You want something that you can base your faith upon that is powerful and real and concrete. We have it. His name is Jesus Christ. Remember how I started out by saying that Islam and Christianity are mirror opposites? What does Islam claim? It claims uh, that the Word of God, it has the eternal Word of God, unchanging, sent down, and perfect, right? Your Quran isn't eternal, it's man-made. Your Quran is not unchanged, it's been changed many times. Your Quran wasn't sent down, revealed to you, it was written by men. Your Quran is not perfect, we've proven that, it's nonsense. We also have a word of God. Not the Bible. The Bible is a word of God. It is a transmission of the word of God, divinely inspired through men with the, whole, the, the, the aid of the Holy Spirit. But we have the word of God. We have Logos. What is his name? Jesus Christ. 
Is he eternal? Yes, he is. Has, is he unchanging? Yes, he is. Was he sent down? Yes, he was. Is he perfect? Yes, he is. Come on home. Come on home. We've got you covered. So, having rambled on for quite a bit longer than I intended, um, I hope this has been illuminating. I'm sure this uh, has been a hell of a lot of information that I threw at people. But, um, you know, this is, this is stuff that needs to be out there. People need to hear this. They need to understand it. 2020 was the year that Islam's foundations were rocked to their very core. And 2021 and onwards, we may well see the devastation of Islam as a faith. Finally, we may finally begin to see millions of people turning away from their false pagan god to the true god. It's a wonderful time to be alive, my friends. With that, it's time for me to end. Um, and I know I have rabbited on for quite long enough, so let's just call it a, a, a day here. This has been Didactic Mind number 79, and this is Didact, signing off.